Life doesn't go as scripted. I know, it's hard to believe, but it's true. I'm glad it doesn't go as scripted. I dig chaos and I like the surprise, the fate, karma, God, whatever throws my way. The thing is, as I look back at my life, I can see the patterns, see the way my existence has felt scripted or directed or steered. It's strange. What I keep forgetting is that not everyone gets to read my script. My life. I'm talking about my life when I say my script. It's a metaphor. Roll with it. Not everyone knows my origin story and how I became a writer. Again, hard to believe, but true. There are a lot of new listeners to this podcast. Folks that never heard the first version that I put out years ago. Folks that only stumbled on the redux and know jack shit. Or would that be Jake shit? Sorry, I apologize. No jack shit about my career and everything I've done to get where I am. So I'm going to dive in. Just dive right in and go from start to finish so y'all can hear some realness. Maybe if I talk about my mistakes and also my triumphs, a couple of you out there will learn something you need to learn before you possibly, probably make the wrong decisions I made. Are you all ready? Are you ready to hear a Bible story? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't resist. And just, you know, fair, fair warning, no promises that there won't be any more awful puns. Sorry, but that's just life unscripted. Welcome to Writing in Suburbia with Jake Bible. Hey y'all, just wanted to let you know that I have more than this podcast going on. I'm also publishing a weekly newsletter, as well as releasing chapters of novels, the original podcast recording of Dead Mech, the Friday Night Drabble Party, and so much more. Where is all this greatness? Go to jakebible.substack.com. That's jakebible.substack.com. You can subscribe for free and get plenty of cool stuff weekly. Or become a paid subscriber and get the first releases of novels and audiobooks before they go on sale. Full access to the Dead Mech podcast immediately instead of weekly installments. Access to the full archive and exclusive threads and discussions, plus a ton of cool stuff I haven't even thought up yet. Head over to jakebible.substack.com and subscribe now. Again, welcome to Writing in Suburbia with Jake Bible. What is this podcast? It's a place where I talk about my career as a professional writer, my fiction, my dreams, my life and family, host other authors, eventually. Try out some new things and just be real for a moment. I promise not to get preachy, to always be kind, and to be 100% honest without hurting anyone. So, sit back and relax and prepare to be entertained. But, before we get into the meat of the episode, how about some quick Jake Bible Fiction news?
Welcome to the JBF News. Well, not much new this week. Still waiting on the Rogue 6 cover. I'm still writing Rogue 7. Dead Mech is still available as a free ebook, and I'm also re-releasing the original podcast, which is in this feed. Or you can buy the audiobooks of Dead Mech and the entire Apex trilogy. Go to my store or any of those mega corporations. Remember those guys? Mega corporations. They got them. They got them all. Um, I was just on the Dead Robot Society podcast slash vidcast, so go check that out. Seriously, that's about it, y'all. Oh, and if you're in the chatting mood, then hop over to jakebible.substack.com and join in on the threads I put up. Any and all comments are welcome. Um, I guess last thing, which really isn't news, is if you're digging this podcast, then please give it a rating on your podcast app of choice. It does help. Let's move on from the news then. Well, or was it really news? There really wasn't news. So let's just move on and get to the meat of the episode. To hell with all these sides and appetizers. No, I don't think that metaphor worked too well. Anyway, thanks y'all. I'm going to wing it from here on out. Usually I script this like an audio essay, but today I'm going back to my writing in suburbia roots and just going to let it rip. So buckle up, because I'm going to let it rip. I don't mean that like in a farting way. Don't be gross. I know some of you are being gross. Don't be gross. Don't. All right. Well, here we are. (laughs) What am I getting into? I'm getting into my origin story. going to talk about how I um, started as a writer, why I became a writer, all the many writerly goodness things that, you know, led me to this path of being a professional writer and making a living at it, you know, up, down living, very up, very down living. You just, um, yeah, (laughs) that's just how it is. All right, where to start? Let's start at the very beginning. Um, you know, classic question is, Jake, how did you get your start as a writer? Or no, better question would be, uh, Jake, when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? Or or an even better question is, what was the first story you wrote? Or, you know what, let's just go back to the very beginning. I come from a long line of bullshitters. Let's just say it. both sides. Uh, My dad and then my mom's dad uh, were in sales pretty much their entire lives. Different sales fields, but um, sales. And if you're in sales, you're full of shit. That's really all there is to it. Um, And before any salespeople out there get mad or think I'm not full of shit, yeah, you are. You're totally full of shit. And I say this because I did sales for a very long time starting in 1999, all the way up through, well, I mean, basically until 2013, uh, when I started writing professionally full-time, and then back in 2019, all of 2019, um, I was back as a sales manager. Um, So I I know the biz. I get it. Um, Salespeople are full of shit. 
You just can't help it. You want to make that sale. You start stretching the truth a little bit. Um, you leave things out here and there. Uh, you tell your, you know, customer what they want to hear to make the sale. Um, which is basically, I mean, you're telling them a story. And that's what it comes down to. And that's why I brought up the sales thing. I come to bullshitting and telling stories naturally. It's literally both sides in my DNA. That's just how it is. So um, very young, I learned how to spin a yarn. And I've always been spinning yarns. I've always been telling stories. Um, a lot of times they were called lies, but I couldn't help it. Um, and it's not a pathological lying situation. It's not a situation where I just lied a lie. It's it's not that. It's There's a story in my head that relates to whatever I'm experiencing at the time, and I just start telling the story, even if it's just not true. And there's no reason to tell the story other than it's in my head and I need to get it out. And I've always been that way. Always been that way from day one. I've always been that way. It is, it's a trip. It really is. Um, so yeah, as a small child, I was telling stories, telling stories, telling stories. And then I got lucky. And here's, here's something I'm married to. My wife is an assistant principal uh, at an elementary school here in Asheville, North Carolina. And she's been an educator. This is her first year as administration. She's been a teacher, educator for over 20 years. Um, yeah, definitely over 20 years. And um, I have a deep, deep, deep respect for public education, not just because I'm married to an educator, um, but because I went to public school and um, I did not have a good childhood. It was not stable. It was not loving. It was not fun. Um, it was, there was a lot of bad, a lot of bad, a lot of bad that probably would have broken people. Um, you know, just give you an idea. I got a restraining order against my own father at the age of 16. I was 16. My father was much older, obviously. Um, so that kind of, you know, lets you know that, um, things weren't great. So strangely, <laughs> and this is a love hate thing. Um, school was my refuge. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in a lot of education, you get a lot of educators that are there because they have so little personal power that they feel, or they did. And it's, I'm not saying it's this still the same way. It, it depends place to place. But um, a lot of educators uh, ended up lording over their students, going into it so they had a place of importance and a place of power uh, that they could latch onto. Um, all of those teachers that I had, the ones that you know took me head on, that wouldn't stand my storytelling, and I'm saying that with quotes, storytelling, also known as lies, um, everybody who went at me directly regretted it. Uh, regretted it almost instantly. Um, I have a wit to me and it is sharp. Um, I learned it from my father who, um, honestly is one of the funniest people that I knew. Um, he truly was hilarious, 
mean, <laughs> horribly mean, but um, hilarious. And so um, I learned a lot at home. Um, one of it being sarcasm, good old sarcasm. So I could honestly hand it to any teacher that came at me and um, I'd have the class on my side, which means I had an audience, which means I knew um, I would always have a reception to my storytelling, to my lies, to my whatever, um, whether good, bad, ugly, whatever, didn't matter. But in all of that, I will say there was during elementary school and during middle school and even a little bit in high school, um, there was, there was, there were those teachers that, um, saved me. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Uh, Mike Garling, if you're listening, you totally saved my ass, um, and taught me respect. That was something I didn't learn at home. Um, in elementary school, he taught me not just to respect others, but to respect myself that, um, I could do better and I could be better. Um, he also taught me storytelling. He was amazing, an amazing storyteller. Uh, we've even been um, corresponding back and forth lately because uh, he has an awesome children's book that I, I, I think he needs to get out there. Um, but yeah, he, he taught me so much about storytelling and taught me that what I had to say was worth saying it. Um, he taught everybody that. This wasn't like I was under his wing or anything. It's just the atmosphere he created. And in elementary school, we had to create books. We had to write a book, um, actually physically write it on, you know, small pieces of paper, book-sized paper. Um, it was a way to obviously practice penmanship. Um, and then we would put um, cardstock over it and tape it with actual library tape, uh, book binding tape, and illustrate the cover and create a little bio, you know, about the author in the back and all of that, and legitimately make a physical book, um, which as a voracious reader, and I always have been since I can remember, um, that was pretty cool. <laughs> I was making my own books. That's pretty neat. And I actually, I think I still have some. They're up in the attic somewhere. In fact, I know I still have some somewhere, but it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome um, that that was something I was exposed to in public school. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I wish everyone could have those kinds of opportunities. And here's where I'm going to hop on a soapbox real quick. If we fund public education, public education, everyone can have those possibilities. Um, if we fund publication, we can get the ratio of amazing, amazing teachers to shitty teachers to flip. Um, we can make sure that there are more Mike Garlings in the world. Pay them what they're worth. And every teacher, whoever, I don't care their quality, every teacher who's in public education deserves double, triple what they get. And for all you parents out there that are at home with your kids and struggling and going, wow, this is insane. Um, and all you people out there who are saying, well, now they don't have to do anything. I'm doing all the work. Trust me, you you see 5% of what goes into teaching your kids, even if it's virtual. You have no clue, no clue. And for those of you that do have a clue, I applaud you. 
Um, get out there, proselytize, tell the world, fund public education so everyone can have an experience that I did and have that one teacher that points you in a direction that is positive and good and kept me from going in a very, 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 very wrong direction. The other thing elementary school did was introduce me to musical theater. Um, third grade, I was up on a stage. Fourth grade? Fourth grade. No, third grade up on a stage and then fourth grade up on a bigger stage um, in front of thousands of people. And I'm not exaggerating. That's not hyperbole. Um, we were one of the first, we were the first school to perform in the Holt Center in Eugene, Oregon. Um, and we were, you know... We, we we were just a bunch of kids at just an elementary school getting up there and doing a production. It was incredible. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It introduced me to the theater, which I took on um, with me to middle school and then high school. And I performed from age eight to 18 in um, school and community theater. Um, I, I, I cranked out some roles and I deep dived into that shit. Um, I truly love the theater. I think the the creative medium is incredible. And if I could spend one place in my life uh, for the rest of my life, I, I would spend it in the theater. Um, and it's weird because I don't necessarily like writing stage plays, but I love staging plays. And I love what that empty canvas can bring to the mind and what can be invented and I love rigging stuff and I love inventing just a different way of looking at things. And I love how you can go minimal, just a chair on the stage, or you can go super over the top with special effects. It's theater is amazing. And that, you know, brings me to middle school. Lori Gatormson uh, taught the tag program, talent and gifted program, which luckily I was in once again, saving me from probably some very, 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 very bad choices. Um, she was another person who was big on personal respect. Uh, we called her Lori. And in elementary school, we called all, all our teachers by their first name too. You know, I called Mike, Mike. Um, it was only fair. They, you know, they saw it as only fair, truly. Um, and I agree. <laughs> you know, they call us by our first names. We should call them by their first names. Mutual respect. It is hard to be an asshole to someone that you're calling by your first name. And that goes both ways in a way. But definitely for me, it would have been hard for me to be an asshole to a teacher uh, if I called them by their first name. So there's that. Um, but Lori helped run the, did run and produce the productions, uh, musical productions, uh, and the chorus, um, and tag. <laughs> wow. She did a lot at, um, the middle school I went to. Um, and Jamie Anderson was the director and choreographer. Uh, she wasn't a teacher there, but she'd been collaborating with Lori forever. And she was part of the community. And, um, I learned so much again, respect, but I learned family. I learned that I had worth. Um, I learned collaboration. I learned how to play well with others, which I'm not always the greatest at. It's one reason I suck at networking and suck at schmoozing and getting out there, which is weird for all the years I've been in sales. Um, I just, you know, hate the networking and schmoozing and all of that. Cause it's like, screw you. I don't know you. Why do I even want to 
be around you. Um, but <laughs> theater is a whole other world of collaboration and, um, it's, it's a democracy in a way, but it's totally not. It's, you know, it's a benevolent dictatorship. There is one person in charge or two people in charge and, um, you do what is said. You just get through it. Um, because that's theater. Somebody has to be in charge, but the respect that Lori and Jamie brought to all the kids outstanding, um, I was a shit, a major shit at times. And I felt bad when I was a shit. Um, a lot of times I didn't feel bad when I was a shit, but in that environment I did. And, um, I learned lessons and I changed behaviors and, um, I learned more and more about storytelling, which, you know, the theater is a great place to learn storytelling. It, it really is. Um, you know what? I'm going to pause this real quick. Uh, you may hear a click, click, cause I'm not going to do any editing on this one. I'm gonna just let it flow, but I got to pause because I have a sick dog that needs to go outside right now. See, Hey, welcome to life as a writer. <laughs> Disaster averted. Isn't that great? See, you're getting a glimpse. This, this was always kind of part of the fun part of writing in suburbia, the old version of just winging it, going for it. And, um, <laughs> It was completely unedited and unscripted, so um, all these weird things that would happen would um, happen. Yeah, so there's that. But let's get back to... Let's get back to respect. Let's get back to collaboration. Let's get back to theater. Let's get back to learning storytelling um, through theater. Uh, it changed... It changed the way I saw stories. It changed the way I told stories. Um from that, I that was probably the real beginning of wanting to be a writer um, or creator. Uh, you know, I, I like I said, was a voracious reader and still am to a certain extent. Although my time is um, limited, <laughs> considerably limited, so I don't get to devour content like I used to. Uh, but one great thing was. I'd always had aspirations of being a creator, but unfortunately the way this world works is we put certain things on pedestals, which means the perception is they're out of reach. You have to be something amazing and something special in order to create, to be a writer, to be a filmmaker, to be an actor, to be an anything, which for those of us that are in it, whether you're a professional writer or whether you're an actor or a singer or whatever, for those of us that are in it professionally and have hit that point where that you never, never in a million years thought you would hit. I mean, I've written over 60 novels. Um, they've all been published by publishers, um, not self-published, even though I'm going that direction, but that's just commerce and reality why I'm going that direction. Um, but even though, I mean, I, I hit the dream, I, a published author, a published writer, it, <laughs> it's not as much of a dream. It's hard work. It's a job. It's you, you, the, the newness wears off quickly. The shine wears off quickly. You realize that, um, the hard part comes after you've made it. Um, don't get me wrong. The hard, it was extremely hard getting 
to where I am. And I will explain all of that. Don't worry. But <laughs> nothing needs to be put on a pedestal. <laughs> no one needs to be put on a pedestal. And any anyone in the arts who insists that they should be put on a pedestal is an asshole, uh, is a narcissist, is an egotist, and um, I'm sure doesn't play well with others. Um, and it's all false bravado anyway, because um, artists and creators... There are very few of us out there that um, are super 100% confident in everything we do and don't have some major whatever humanity <laughs> to us. <laughs> so yeah, get rid of the pedestals, y'all. It's it's nothing special. It's just luck and timing and the coming together of influences and talents and whatever. It's, it's just so many different things. It's that fate karma thing all over again. It just happens the way it happens. Um, it's just a lot of hard work. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. But anyway, so, you know, don't put people up on a pedestal. Don't put the artists up on the pedestal. We need to get rid of those pedestals because I think it gets in the way of people going for it. Um, they have an image in their mind of something unattainable, but it's completely attainable. It's completely attainable. I mean, I've always said, if you put pen to paper, if you put fingers to keyboard, whatever, um, and you write, then you're a writer. You don't need permission for that. You don't at all. You don't need someone to tell you you're a writer. You don't need someone to tell you you're a good writer. Who fucking cares? I mean, quality is 100% subjective. Just look at the world around us. Just look at the content that's on television, the movies, the books, the podcasts, the whatever, whatever. Just look at it all and don't tell me that, you know, that quality is objective, that quality rises to the top, that quality will always show itself, that um, blah, blah, blah. Fuck that. That's not true. It's not true at all. Uh, quality is subjective. You know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder and everyone has a different definition of beauty. So there you go. Um, so yeah. <laughs> See, this, this is also the part of the just going for it thing where I start to lose my train of thought and I start to <laughs> ramble a little bit, but let's get back. All right. So quality, quality is subjective. So there's, there's nothing to get in your way from just going for it and being what you want to be. Now, I understand there are certain arts out there that, you know, I probably couldn't be a professional dancer, even though that would be probably cool, but I doubt I have the physicality for it. I'm also 47 years old, so probably not going to start right now. Um, but something I wanted to do when I was younger was be a film director and writer. Mostly I wanted to direct. Uh, writing was hard. Um, coming up with ideas wasn't as hard, um, but writing was kind of hard. Even when I was doing creative writing in middle school and doing creative writing in high school, um, it's tough. Uh, after a certain amount of time, I'd literally get a headache. And, um, so I thought, you know, being the lazy little shit that I was, that directing would be much easier. Someone just hand me a script. I don't have to write it. I'll just direct it. And Hey, you know, creative ego and all of that. 
Um, I would be in charge. I would also know better because I'm the director and I should be the director because I know better. Yeah, figure that logic out. And um, that's what I wanted to do. Originally wanted to be a veterinarian, but um, too much math, way too much math. Um, Not that I wasn't good at math. I was in AP calculus, but I hated math at that point and I didn't want to keep doing math. (laughs) So I was like, I'm out, out of the sciences, going into the arts. So I read everything I could on filmmaking. I studied everything I could on filmmaking. Um, I tried to make videos, uh, but, you know, didn't have the equipment, didn't have the editing. You know, it's not like now. Oh, my God, now the ability to film and edit a movie can have, I mean, it it literally happens in a weekend. I've done the 48-hour film, you know, project uh, for several years with a great team, yay team long shot. And, um, we can make an eight minute movie, write it, shoot it, edit it, finish it in a weekend, um, because of the technology. Now, back then you needed a video bay, um, at the, you know, best, or you had to, and I ended up doing this. I did a little bit of film school after high school. Um, you literally shot on 16 millimeter film, sent the film off, got it back, watched it, and then spliced it with razor blades and put it together with tape. I shit you not. I mean, we are talking analog physical editing that was holy crap crazy. Um, excuse me. So yeah, (laughs) I studied everything I could. And I wanted to be a filmmaker and, um, it still always felt unobtainable because you see, I mean, that's what Hollywood does. It wants you to think that everyone's special so that you spend all that money. So people spend millions and millions and millions and millions and now billions of dollars on entertainment, um, to escape, but also because in a way you want to be that actor or actress or that screenwriter or that special effects guy or that director or the choreographer or costume design. You want to be part of that. Um, you want to share in it. Um, so Hollywood keeps the myth going that it's all very special and it's not. It is, yes, the end result is special, but the process and the people involved are just doing their jobs. It's very mundane. It really is. I mean, you get into it. Not to say it's not fun and not rewarding and not amazing. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's it's job. It's job. It's jobs. That's what people are doing. They're jobs. And it's work. And it's hard. So, film... Filmmaking, tried to do it, graduated from high school, um, didn't get to go to college. Uh, life changed. Um, my mom got in a, into a car accident when I was 18. I ended up supporting her and my sister for two years. Did a little bit of film school at the um, community college. And that's where I learned that A, I really at that point didn't want to live in Southern California where everything was happening. I was living in Oregon at the time. Um, And so there's that Oregon bias against Californians anyway, or at least Southern Californians. So that was a bunch of bullshit that was in my head. Um, I also realized how expensive it was. Unbelievably expensive. And I was going to be hustling for the money the whole time. And um, I was working 
full time at a pizza hut when I was doing that. So I couldn't even comprehend trying to track down the amount of money it would take. I, I couldn't, couldn't even come close to comprehending how, how to even make that happen. So that right there is really, you know, I had to write scripts. Of course, you learn how to write scripts, but that's when I decided, you know, it's free to write. <laughs> it is. It's completely free to write. So I started diving back in and revisiting ideas I had in high school and even ideas I had in middle school um, and started inventing new things and started trying writing, uh, trying to write poetry, which I suck at. So uh, I don't write poetry. Um, writing some short stories, which yeah, I'm not too shabby at. Um, the endings are always the hardest. That's that's tough. But um, I started writing some screenplays and um, then I started trying to figure out how to submit stuff. And that's when it all fell apart, folks. That's when it all fell apart. <laughs> A, I, I just didn't have the drive. Um, and maybe I just had never been given the drive in a way. And if that makes sense, if you know what I'm talking about, I'd never had permission to have the ambitious drive of just going for it and no one tell me no. Um, sending off short stories, you had to mail them. You had to mail them back then. This was the early 90s. Uh, mail to publications, mail to publishers, and it would take six months to a year to get rejected. And I've said this a billion times. Um, the internet is the greatest thing that happened to me and my writing career because I could be rejected instantly, which in a way is not a bad thing. That just, uh, that means, okay, they didn't like that. Here are some reasons, or even if they don't give reasons, I'll move on. Um, but, oh, the time lag back in the, you know, mailing stuff in with a self-addressed stamped envelope so they can send it back if it sucks um, and they don't want it. Seriously, people would send back the same story. It's like, it's because everything, there was computers then and I was printing it all out, but the machinery of publishing was still used to type, you know, typed out manuscripts that you then had to go copy and so copies were important. <laughs> copies were precious. So you sent a self-addressed stamped envelope so they could send your copy back because that shit costs money. <laughs> it's true. But the internet happened. And in between that time, my early 20s, and when I started, you know, in my mid to late 30s, uh, when I started writing, you know, full-time, in between that time, I didn't do a whole lot of writing. I did a lot of journaling um, a lot of self-discovery, a lot of screwing up, a lot of heartbreak and misery and joy and fun and life. Um, met my wife. We moved out from Oregon, moved out to Florida, had a kid, had another kid. And that's how I got into sales was the first kid. I was actually in school to be a massage therapist. I was a cook before I was cooking and I was actually running a lunch bar at a health food store while going to night school to be a massage therapist. And right as uh, my son was born, my first child, um, I ended up getting an offer to be a sales rep for a supplement company, which made a lot more money than slinging hummus, made a lot more money than um, giving massages. And I also then wouldn't be required to touch the icky people 
And uh, no offense out there, y'all. There, there are some non-icky people, but there are some people where you see them laying down, face down on that table without clothes on and all that's on that back that you're about to grease up and touch. You go, no, I don't want to. <laughs> and I was really good at it. That's the thing. I still am a massage table. Really good at massage, but it was the touching other people. It got old after a while. So anyway, got a sales job. That's how that worked. You know, I need to make a living. I needed to support my family. From there, the sales job morphed into being able to move up to North Carolina, um, was on the road a ton. And as I'm on the road, of course, my brain is thinking, my brain is creating stories, creating all kinds of stuff. I even had a little hand recorder, um, an actual cassette recorder, not a mini cassette, the full size one um, that I brought with me. And I would just, you know, dictate ideas. Uh, nothing ever came of them. Nothing. I wonder if I have that tape somewhere. Ooh, wonder what ideas I had. Ooh, that's a good thought. Hmm, I might have to track that down. I bet I have it in a box somewhere. That would be cool. So anyway, uh, lots of driving, lots of thought time, lots of being in my head, lots of listening to audiobooks. Um, then the sales rep job went away and I ended up being a customer service rep for an online retailer. And the online retailer, you know, did a ton of business, but it's online so 75% of interactions with the customers were emails. Um, like I said, I've written 60 novels and I've written 50 novels in five years. So I can rip out a very coherent professional email quickly. Uh, so I just totally did that. That's what I did. I, I, I wrote a ton of emails and as I was writing them, I'm like, I can write. Why don't I get back into writing? Because during the downtime, if the phone's not ringing and there are no emails, I didn't have anything to do because I couldn't leave my desk because it was customer service. You had to wait for the emails and the phones to come to you. I couldn't just walk away. So I started writing. Um, and then I got an iPod and I started listening to podcasts and I started listening to short story podcasts. And then I started listening to podcast novels. And that right there is the kicker. That is the catalyst. Um, I wrote a few short stories, sent them off to some online publications, got rejected on a bunch, but then started getting accepted. And I made myself a deal. If I get six, if I sell six short stories, I'll start a novel. And if I start a novel, I'm going to podcast that bastard because I was listening to some amazing podcast novels at the time. Um, but I was also listening to some really shitty ones, um, some really shitty ones. Uh, some of it wasn't the writing. Some of it was people there. There are folks in the world who, um, have a voice for print. Um, I'm not tooting my horn, but I, I, I'm okay. I've got, I've got a voice for audio. Um, some don't <laughs> and listening to them read their own stuff was painful. It hurt. It really, really, truly, truly hurt. Ouch. Ouch. Anywho. <laughs> so there's that. Um, but you know, I started listening to podcast novels and I realized I could write a novel and podcast it and maybe get noticed. And that's how dead Mac started. And that's how dead Mac 
happened. And I don't know if the mic is picking this up or not, but I have a really itchy eyebrow. And that's that noise right there. Anyway, get back to Dead Mech. So I started podcasting Dead Mech. And um, there's a couple things I did that I would say never, ever do. First off, you should have a completed manuscript ready to go before you podcast your novel. I shit you not, please do that. Um, it worked for me because I'm good under pressure, but it wasn't the best idea. Um, having to write and then record. I mean, I was recording and producing that podcast novel as I was writing it. It wasn't finished. It wasn't ready. Um, what's even crazier is I created a whole new form of novel. I created the Drabble novel, which means every section inside each chapter is exactly 100 words. Um, and it's the entire novel is made up of these 100 word sections. And I could, it, it, narratively, it worked out. Once you get used to it, you realize, wow, this, it has a very cinematic quality. It's like cuts. I mean, you're cutting from scene to scene and you can cut back and forth, really fast cuts. Um, and it worked, um, but it was a shit ton of work. It was stressful. It was a hellish nightmare at times, but it was ultimately extremely rewarding. Um, I will recommend write if you want, if you're a writer out there and you want to learn how to be a good um, self editor, uh, write Drabbles. That's a short story, microfiction, and they have to be exactly 100 words. So you just write the story and then you edit it down to 100 words, um, which means you learn to get rid of a lot of shit, get rid of a lot of crap. Um, it's basically a Hemingway school of writing. You all the superfluous crap and flowery blech that you want to put in there, you cut because it's all about the story. Um, so that's kind of cool. So try it out if you want to. But anyway, I started podcasting Dead Mech. Then I podcast The Americans, which was a sidequel. And I said sidequel, not sequel, because it takes place exact same time as Dead Mech, just different characters, different part of the world. And then it all comes together in Metal and Ash which is why it's called the Apex Trilogy, because it comes together in a nice little Apex. Boop, boop, boo. Um, I got Dead Mech published, but it was a very, very, very small press, and right before Kindle exploded, uh, it didn't work out. I got it all back, um, got my rights back. I ended up getting um, able to sell down the line here. I published it myself, didn't have time to make that work. Um, and then I was able to get a publisher for the trilogy. They, they thought it would be cool. So I got, got that trilogy published. And then the company I was working for, the online retailer, went completely dead bust. And um, I ended up having to write full time. And I got lucky because I wrote Zeburbia um, based on... <laughs> the subdivision I live in and all of the inane bullshit you deal with, with an HOA, uh, just all set in the zombie apocalypse and that hit and it did great. And the next one did great. You know, I'm small press, great, not big bestseller. Great, but, um, small press, great. This was the height of the zombie craze. So that helped. Um, then I went on and wrote mega, uh, gigantic shark and ex Navy seals, what could go wrong there? Um, and I just kept writing. And, you know, I worked out a deal where I could 
you know, crank out a novel a month and get a small advance, but a decent enough advance to keep us, you know, fed and lights on. Um, and it just started getting bigger and better. And I wrote Salvage Merc 1, which exploded in the military sci-fi charts and exploded in Kindle. Um, it was, God, was it in the top 100? I think it hit the top 100 overall. Um, in the entire Kindle store, um, I made a good amount of money off of that and, um, wrote a couple more books and they did okay. And then books, the market changed, Amazon changed, taste changed, people changed and a ton of really good indie writers, independent publishers, self-published writers, uh, came into the genre, the military sci-fi genre that I was camping in. And um, diluted the market instantly, and no reason. I'm hey hey, great, good for them, awesome. You you, whatever success any writer has, I'm all for. But things got considerably tougher, and <laughs> feast or famine. Uh, that's the writer's life, and the famine hit, and it kept hitting, and it kept hitting, and it kept hitting. Um, and I was kind of locked into some series, and even new series I created just weren't doing well. So there you go. Then I, um, 2018, I made the decision to go back to work. Uh, you know, I had five good years. Actually, I had about three good years and two eh, scary years. And then uh, went back to work as a sales manager. Um, and I was talking to a good friend of mine, good writer friend of mine also um, the other day. And, um, you know, I never really said it, but the reality is, is as he put it, you burned out, dude. And it's true. I burned out and that's all there is to it. I burned out. Um, I wrote 50 novels in five years, so I kind of burned out. So I walked away from the podcast. I walked away from writing for a bit. You know, I still was doing a little bits here, some short stories there, but really I was focusing on sales and focusing on that life and, um, taking a vacation, from my writing and it was needed. Um, so let that be a little bit of a lesson, careful of the burnout, careful of how hard you push yourself. And it's still a lesson I'm learning today. Um, trying not to pile on too much. Um, trying to take my time as needed and not freak out over, ah, I don't have this done yet. So yeah, (laughs) there was burnout. That's, I'll just admit it right there. And then COVID hit. And hey, hey, COVID, how you doing? Yeah, doing well? Awesome. And I was laid off because I was expensive, extremely expensive as a sales manager. And um, we were selling to museums, we were selling to zoos, we were selling to the national parks, we were selling to amusement parks, we were selling to everybody that had been shut down. So I was out of there laid off in March, 2020 and still laid off and probably not going to be going back into sales because uh, let's face it, folks, I don't think there's a big demand for sales managers right now. Not a huge one. No. So I am in the writing new podcast with a new format, changing things up a little bit, getting a little more professional. Um, I absolutely love editing audio. It's one reason I'm narrating and producing audiobooks. 
but I especially love something like this podcast where I can add music and effects and have segments. And, you know, so if some of you listen to it and you go, oh, we've already heard the welcome. We've already heard this. Oh, do you have to do the news? Do you have to do that end thing? Um, yes, I do have to do it because it makes me happy and I enjoy it and I want to be happy and I want to enjoy the things I'm creating. I want to be happy and I want to enjoy what time I have left, <laughs> especially doing this job, uh, this writing life, uh, writing in suburbia. I want to enjoy it. Um, I don't want to dread it. And so, yeah, you'll probably get some stuff in this podcast that you may not dig and that's okay. I have no problem with you not digging it because if it's in there, then I like it and it makes me happy and I want to be happy. And that's kind of where we're at folks. Um, that was really fast. I'm looking at the time here and I realized that I've been talking for a while now. Um, but still, <laughs> um, that was definitely kind of my origin story abbreviated, if you will. Um, I could go into a lot more depth and I probably will at some point. I'll probably go into those five years of writing, you know, way more in depth. I kind of gloss over all that. But I think the key points, if you're a writer and if you are starting out in this business is to know it's feast or famine, heavy on the famine, lots of rejection. And even when you think you've made it, you never have really made it. You have to keep at it. I'm not saying I didn't keep at it, but you need to be aware that that great success you had is fleeting. And if you don't capitalize on it, um, the success is probably going to, or don't have the opportunity to capitalize on it. I definitely tried. Um, you know, you, you're going to go back to zero and rebuild and it's all okay because that's how it is. That's being a creator. That's being a storyteller. That's being a bullshit artist. That's being a whatever. Um, you got to start over and that's what I'm doing. New podcast, new all kinds of things. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I think I'm going to leave it there. I think this is a good origin story, if you will. If I get into too much detail of everything else, it stops being an origin story and starts being a memoir. And um, eventually you'll have to buy that for $25.99 in hard copy, uh, autographed, of course, you know, in a few years from now. So I don't want to give that all away. But that's it. Um, plus, as you can hear, um, I've already been doing a lot of talking today. So the voice is, is a little thrashed. So yeah, thanks, y'all. I mean, honestly, thank you for listening to my little rambling origin story. Hey, and do me a favor, go into the comments. Let me know how you liked it. Um, I don't mind doing a little more rambly, a little more off the cuff, um, a little less scripted essay style. Uh, if you dig this over that, or if you dig essay style over this, or if you dig longer, this is definitely going to be longer than the average ones, or you dig short, just give me your opinions. I just want to know what you all think out there, okay? Um, kind of flying blind, just sitting behind my desk all alone. It's just me and my mic. Ooh, yeah. All right. Let's, um, let's move on. But before we move on from the story of my amazing life, how about a word from our sponsor, which is me. I'm the sponsor, but you knew that. Hey, all you crazy folks out there. 
Do you like zombies? Do you like mechs? Do you like post-apocalyptic wastelands filled with cults and cannibals and city-states and hundreds of thousands of the undead? Then you're gonna love Dead Mech. In the far, far future, Dead Mech asks the question, what happens when a mech pilot dies while piloting their 50-foot battle robot and then becomes a zombie? You get a Dead Mech. Dead Mech is available for free as an ebook, and you can find the link at jakebible.com. Want to listen for free? Then check out the re-release of the original podcast version of the novel. Subscribe for free at jakebible.substack.com and you'll get an episode each week delivered right to the podcast player of your choice. Hell, you may have already noticed an episode or two in this very feed. Don't want to wait each week? Then feel free to either become a paid subscriber at jakebible.substack.com and get all of the episodes at once, or go to jakebible.com and purchase the audiobook from the web store. Or buy it from one of those giganto mega corporations. They have copies waiting for you, too. Remember, head to jakebible.com or jakebible.substack.com. You're gonna love it! Always a good time, right? I do miss the spooky guy, though. Come back, Halloween! Come back! Alright, before I kick it over to the end credits, I wanted to just say thank you. Just one big, giant thank you. And I've said it before, but I'm gonna say it again. I really couldn't do this without every one of you. I mean, who would I tell my crazy, rambling origin story to if I didn't have all you out there, right? So, as always from the bottom of my heart, giant thank you and something to always remember you can only fail if you quit life writing everything is a long game so keep at it i'll talk to you next week cheers y'all Writing in Suburbia with Jake Bible is a Jake Bible Fiction LLC production, all rights reserved. All music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Kevin has been a huge part of the podcast community for well over a decade now, so check him out and drop him some coin if you get a chance. Full credits are in the show notes. For all links to works and stuffs mentioned in the episode, please check out the show notes or head over to jakebible.substack.com. Thank you for listening. Cheers, y'all.